Let's pray, and then we'll jump into our, uh, our sermon here this morning. So, Lord, we ask that you would be with us in this time of, we're really, Father, we seek to hear from you. We seek to hear from your spirit's movement in our hearts, Lord. So, Father, give us eyes to hear, ear uh, to see, and ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Father, take our hard hearts that most of us walk into a service like this with, that we think we know it all, we think we've got it together, we think we, 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 we figured this stuff out, and Lord, transform them into hearts of flesh that will listen to your still small voice in our lives. Father, we pray that you would comfort those that need comforted this morning, that you would encourage those that need con- encouragement, Lord, and I, Father, I pray that you would even convict those that need conviction this morning, leading us all to look more and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what do you say when there's absolutely nothing good to say at all? What do you say in those situations? I've not personally had this circumstance yet, but I've been, um, I've been assured by my colleagues that my day is coming at some time in the near future, that I will have a situation that's similar to one that my, one of my mentors went through just a couple of months ago. He was asked to, uh, to conduct the funeral of a man who was sort of a a family member's family member of a congregant. You know, it's one of those like, this is my like wife's third cousin removes brother and they don't really have a pastor to do the service. So would you do it? And he was like, okay, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll be willing to do that. And so as was his custom, he went to meet with the family prior to the service and ask questions of them and try to figure out what the, that they wanted the service to look like. And, and as is many of uh, a pastor's custom to, to hear stories of the person's life and to just kind of get to know that person a little bit through the stories that are shared around the table. And so at this meeting, my mentor asked the question of what their, their strongest memories of their father, their, their husband, their, their, their friend were of those folks that were gathered around this table. And, and person by person, the people started to share about Things like dishonest business practices, unhealthy lifestyles, treating others horribly over and over and over again in every possible way, and abuses galore throughout the whole thing. There wasn't a single positive thing that anybody shared around that table about this person's life. He had no known faith, And he was known throughout the community to be a dishonest man that you did not want to do any business with or interaction with at all. His own family couldn't think of one one redeeming quality within his life. What do you say when there really isn't anything good to say? As these stories were shared with my mentor, I think he was given a choice kind of similar to the one that, that David finds laid before him in the scripture that, that we kind of come in contact with this, this morning as he hears of Saul's passing away. Remember, he's been anointed as king a while back, and then he slays the giant Goliath that we talked about last week in, in our sermon there, and then and then in that in-between time between that happening and now Saul's death, David has, has had quite the, the few years to maybe even up to a decade or so worth of time that's kind of been in there. He's, he's served Saul within Saul's royal courts, and he's, you know, played his instruments to make Saul's kind of 
mental health issues ease down a little bit better in those situations. And, and so he's, he's served Saul, and then he's also almost been pinned to the wall by Saul's spear a few times, and he's ended up finding himself running for his life more than once. He spends probably a couple of years worth of time just actually running for his life out in the wilderness with Saul and his army kind of trailing after him wherever he goes. And a few of these times, he only gets out of Saul's grip because of Saul's son, Jonathan, one of his really good friends who, who ends up giving him a heads up or helps him out and, and helps him to be able to narrowly escape Saul's plans. Eventually, David, as I said, takes to the wilderness with this group of fighting men with him, and he's chased by Saul constantly for years on end. And it's quite obvious to the reader of 1 Samuel, by the time you get to the end of 1 Samuel, that Saul has absolutely lost it in every way, shape, and form possible. He's a shell of the leader that he was back when he was, he was anointed to be king at the beginning. And remember, there were even a couple of few good years that occurred there right after he was anointed as king, but, but he's lost it. He's no longer fit to be king, and, and he seems to have had some sort of emotional or mental or both health type of issues that have occurred and popped up over the years that, just quite honest, by the time we get to the end of, of 1 Samuel, most of us, when we're reading it, are just, we're kind of ready. We're kind of ready for, for Saul's time as king to be over. We're kind of ready for the next chapter of Israel's history to, to get on with it. We know the story. We know what's going to happen. We know David is, is anointed a king. We know it's coming. And so we're just kind of, by the time we get to the point, we're kind of, we're kind of ready for it. We've kind of prepared ourselves. Saul needs to go. All right. And so we're, we're at that point where we're okay with that. And so the scripture that lies before us is David's response to that news that Saul Saul has died. And the scripture that I'm really going to hone in on, which is, comes right after the passage that Curtis shared, you kind of gave the background story of sorts for the passage that I'm really feel led to preach on. The, story, the scripture that lies before us easily could be a scripture about all the great things that could now take place now that Saul had passed. I mean, who would blame David after the last, last few years of running for his life from this man? Who would blame him for being a little bit happy? Just a little bit happy, a tinge of happiness about no longer having to run for his life day after day after day after day. Who would blame him for, for sharing a song with the people of Israel that, that looked in anticipation towards what this next chapter of Israel's history would like, all the, all the things he was going to change and do differently and how he was going to lead in different ways than Saul had led? Who would blame him for beginning to, to speak out about, about how great things would be? Or maybe even just trying to set the record straight about who Saul really was to the rest of the nation of Israel. Who would blame him for doing any of that? If it were me, just all the cards on the table, quite frankly, I'd be tempted to do all those things and probably a few more things if it were me in this particular situation. But that's not what David does. He decides to take a different path in remembering his predecessor. He decides to exalt the one who chased him down with sword and spear, he decides to preserve a positive memory of the king who tried to kill him over and over and over again. He decides to lead the people of Israel in a lament 
instead of a song of rejoicing in hearing about Saul's death. Listen to this song. He writes this right after that passage where he kills the messenger um, who comes and shares the news of, of, uh, of Saul's death. Starting in verse 17, it says that David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son, Jonathan. And he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jasher, which is a we think is another book, sort of like the book of Psalms that we have, that was a book of worship music that's there. It's referenced a few other times in scripture. It says, a gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired. And in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. Almost a quarter of the Psalms that we have in the book of Psalms are what we would call laments. To most of us, these are what we would just basically call, those are the depressing psalms. Those are the ones that you get to in your morning devotional reading, and you're kind of going through the psalms, and you get to that one, and you're like, well, that was really depressing. Thanks for writing that one, David. Um, that did not get me up and ready to go in the morning type of thing. They're the sad psalms. They're the depressing psalms. They're the, they're the psalms that, that you can just almost hear the, the tears that were on the page. You almost hear them c- come through the words as you read them aloud, To most of us, we don't really get these because quite frankly, contemporary music, we've lost this tradition of lament. When was the last time you turned on a Christian radio station and you heard a song that was only in a minor key and was just a lament through and through? We don't hear many of these things. We've lost sort of this this art of the lament. But they serve as a rich tradition for us, especially in the midst of difficult times. David writes this lament about Saul, as well as many of the other laments that we get in the Psalms. And and really, they're just, at their their core, they're a response to and an acknowledgement of the fact that this world is not as God originally created, intends, or desires it to be. A lament is is the understanding and acknowledgement that there are things in this world that are broken that are not as God intended them to be originally and will not be the way they are in the kingdom of God that is to come. But what is amazing to me even more than just the fact of this lament, which really is a literary work of art, it's really, really amazing. Um, 
but it's the situation of who David is lamenting. I mean, think about it. Do you think you could do it? Think about it for a second. Do you think you could do it? I'm not really sure I could. Do you really think that, I don't know if I could, I could lament the passing of the person who's been trying to kill me for the last two to three years. That'd be really, really hard to do. This may just be a confession sermon. I'm, you know, maybe it's just my, my issues here. Maybe it's just me. To lament the person who stood in the way of me realizing the very thing that God had called me to be, which was the king of Israel. I'm not sure that I could lament Saul's passing in this way like David does, where there's not even a tinge of anything bad within any of those words. Everything is good. Everything is is mournful. Everything is is written from a place of, of, of what seems like genuine hurt and loss. And I, so much to the, to the point that, that, quite frankly, I think that this scripture is one of the clearest examples of what it means, what we, what it means when it is said in scripture that David is a man after God's own heart. Most of us, when we hear that, we think of like how he was courageous before Goliath or how he, he, he stood and he fought the Philistines. But, but this, to me, shows a heart that beats the way that God's heart beats. Instead of rejoicing in Saul's death, I think that what David has is his eyes to see death through God's eyes. Death through the eyes as of, of, of seeing it as a byproduct of a sinful and a fallen world, regardless of who it is who dies. As something that deserves to be mourned, regardless of how good or bad that person was in the end, death itself, the fact that death exists, is something to be mourned. Because it's not part of God's intended order of things. It's not the way it was in Eden, and it's not the way things shall be in the kingdom of God to come. Instead of, death is not part of God's perfect creation, Instead, it's something that that enters into the world when sin enters in the world. Life is what is God's intention for all of us. Jesus shares this in John 10, 10, when he says that I have come that they should have life and have it to the full. Peter reminds us later on in in 2 Peter that, that God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish. He doesn't want any of us to see death, but not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. Life is God's intention for all of us. And so David sees death for what it is, regardless of who the person is that passes in the situation. He chooses then to remember Saul in a positive light instead of the enemy that he had become. I think David epitomizes then what it looks like to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, which come right from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Instead of writing a song listing all the ways that Saul got things wrong and led in horrible ways and tried to kill him for year after year after year after year, David instead chooses to lay aside all hatred, all hurt, and instead shows respect towards the one who has fallen, the Lord's anointed, and leads others to see that same positive side of King Saul. So, so what does that mean for us today? <laughs> this has been a fun question to answer this week. 
This is a hard scripture to preach. You know it's hard when you open up commentary after commentary after commentary and they turn to you and go, this is one of the most difficult scriptures to preach inside of all of 2 Samuel. Thanks, that's awesome. I'm glad I picked it. Uh, This is great. And what I've realized that we could talk about this, this, this genre of lament. We could talk about lament and how important it is to lament parts of our world, parts of our world that, that quite frankly are in rebellion to the ways of the kingdom of God and how important it is for us to, to have eyes to see that and how important for us is to acknowledge that, to sing that at times, to, that maybe not all of our songs should be happy, clappy, four chords, you know, only one of them's allowed to be minor and, you know, everything has to be, you know, rejoicing, but maybe it's okay to sing a song in a minor key that doesn't resolve itself too well at the end of the day. We could talk about that. We're not going to. We could talk about that. But instead, I think another thing this passage has to speak to us, I think it has a lot to speak to us about how we relate and how we talk about other people. I think the scripture shows us that the words we say about others, whether it's in person, whether it's while gossiping, don't look at me like you don't do it, you do it, all right? Whether they're typed on social media, don't look at me like you don't do it, you do it, all right? We're friends. Um, Whether they're placed in a comment section of an article online, don't even go into those. They're just like, they're straight from the pit of hell, I believe. Um, The comment sections are there. Wherever, Wherever it is, the words you say about others reveal more about who you are than who they are. What you say about another person, whether it's a leader that you dislike, whether it's someone in the church that you don't like, whether it's someone whose lifestyle you don't agree with, whatever it may be, and then there may be a laundry list of reasons why you think it's justified to say something about this person or those people or or that group or whatever it is, but the words we say actually say a whole lot more about who we are than they do about who the person we're talking about is. Now, don't hear what... Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying there aren't times to speak out against things. There certainly are. And Jesus shows us over and over and over again what that looks like as he speaks out against the Pharisees about the Sadducees and the leaders of his day. But we also must remember that how we speak of others, especially when we disagree vehemently, especially when we live in a cultural landscape that is so divisive these days, how we speak about others is more of a reflection on who we are than it really is on who they are in the first place. Especially when we're dealing with people we disagree with vehemently. Especially when we're dealing with people who are in leadership positions over us that we don't agree with the ways they're doing things. Especially when that person or those people aren't in the room. So my questions are, do we tend to speak well of others when it's the church you're talking about? And don't look at me like there's not that person in the church that you really can't stand. Because if you're in a church and you're a group of people, there's probably that person that you just really can't stand, you know? If you're not that person, if you don't know anybody else in the church that is that person that you just can't stand, then you might be that person that no one else can stand. That's, you know, the, the, the mirror is the place maybe at that point that you need to look for that person. But... <laughs> I realize that's where I have to look, uh, usually. Um, But how do we talk about others in the church? Especially when they mess up. 
when they show that they're not perfect, when they say something a little bit off or wrong or they, 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 they trip into sin or do something wrong, do we, do, we, you know, do we crucify them with our words or does it share something else? How do we tend to speak of our colleagues, our supervisors, our leaders? What does it reflect about who we are with how we speak about others? Maybe more to the point these days, what do our Twitter and Facebook updates, Instagram photos for you, Amelia, um, <laughs> and captions, um, what do our social media updates and engagements online or in groups reveal about God's love towards the other person? Or have we reverted to name-calling, belittling, labeling, and other forms of engagement that don't lead anywhere positive. Jesus says it much more succinctly than I could because he's Jesus and he's just good at that. He says when talking to the Pharisees, he says that it's, it's not what, what goes into our mouths that make us unclean or defile us, but it's actually what comes out of our mouths that make us unclean or defile us. Largely because what comes out of our mouth shows the depths of our hearts, shows us where our real hearts lie, shows us whether our hearts are like David's, whether they beat in the same ways that God's heart beats, or whether there's room for repentance still, and room for growth, and room for the Spirit's cleansing still in our hearts. I think if Jesus were here today, he might even add to what comes out of their mouth is what defiles them. He might add that what is typed by their fingers also defiles them at times, you know. And, but if most of our speech tends to be belittling towards others that we disagree with, dehumanizing towards others we disagree with, or speaking ill of people that we don't like or, or we don't see eye to eye with, then I think we maybe what we need to realize is that, that and the scripture kind of leads to, is this idea that maybe that has more to do with revealing our need for repentance than with the issues of who they really are. Maybe we should spend more time when we think about our language and about our interactions with each other, thinking about what does this reveal about who I am, instead of being so worried about winning the argument about who they are. So we're going to head into a time of, of prayer and reflection. This isn't one of those fuzzy sermons, sorry. Um, but I want you to think with me for a minute. If you need to, close your eyes. But I want you to reflect honestly. If you were to pull up the last six months' work of conversations, if we were the NSA and we had a transcript of all your conversations on the phone, all your text messages, all your social media updates, all your backroom gossips, all your comments online, all your interactions with your family, every engagement with another person that you've had, what would they reveal about your heart? Would they reveal a heart that's filled with the love and the compassion, the heart that, as David, seems to be at one with God's heart in this moment? 
Or would they reveal places in need of some cleansing work of the Spirit? In case you want to skip too quickly to say, well, I think they're good, the bad news is is that we're all guilty in some way, shape, or form of this. We all are guilty of speaking of others and engaging with others or even just thinking things about others that really reveals our need for repentance more than anything else. But there's good news as well. The good news is that Scripture tells us over and over and over again that if we will confess those things before God, if we repent of those things and lay them at his feet, that he is faithful to move in our hearts, to bring about change and transformation so that our hearts begin to beat more and more and more day after day like his, and our language will follow from the inside out. And so our band is going to come up here, and they're going to, they're going to play a song about our need for Christ, because really this is where this, this lies. We have no power to change our hearts in and of ourselves. We have no power to change what really sits there, the depths of who we are in and of our own power. It's Christ that we need and his transforming power. As we sing this song, you're welcome to sing with the words that are on the screen or just spend time in prayer. If you need to spend time confessing or repenting, this is, there's no better place to do that than here at church. This is the place to do it. And remember, you'll forget 95% of this by the time we have our potluck. So you probably won't do it if you say, I'll do it later. This is the place for it. This is the time for us to pray and reflect and respond and seek after God's transforming power in our lives. For us to take a good hard look, we need this at times. It's where lament finds its home. Take a good hard look at the places in our own hearts that are still living in rebellion to the ways of the kingdom of God and of allowing God to take those places as we confess them and repent them before him and asking him to transform us more and more into his image, into his likeness, into his ways. Let's pray.